Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs, and today we are lucky enough to have John Michelle with us. And John is the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer and President of MV Global, which is America's largest private transportation company. So, and they have about a billion dollars in annual revenue, and they operate nearly 10,000 vehicles, including buses and shuttles, across the United States and Canada. So most of you probably not, have not heard of John, but he has a, a fascinating background, He's written at least four articles for the Harvard Business Review on leadership. And he's also the co-author of the book, The 12 Talents, The Must-Have Habits and Attitudes of Effective 21st Century Leaders. And with all this, John has a, a deep military background. So I'm not even sure where to start with John with all this. But I think we'll talk about his background and then his views on leadership and then go into his thoughts on innovation and change. So, uh, John, thanks for uh, joining us today. No, it's my pleasure, Dave. I'm, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, just share some perspective and some uh, and some experience um, with the, the listening audience. So, again, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, well, we can't wait. So, John, can you uh, first tell us a little bit about your background before we dive into some other areas? Sure. So, uh, following college, immediately went into the U.S. Air Force, where I was an aviator for uh, you know over 26 years. Um, had the great privilege of leading. At four, you know, four different times at levels, starting from squadron command, process aviators up to group wing, and then ultimately, uh, when I finished my career, I was the uh, uh, the NATO Air Training Command uh, commanding general for the 14 nations responsible for building the Afghan Air Force, wow. which was a 6.7 billion dollar project, uh, and which had never been uh, you know previously attempted in history. So that was very, very rewarding. But then I made the decision that you know if I was going to really get in the business world, which was a passion of mine. It was time to transition, or otherwise, I'd be on for another four or five years. So, made that choice and uh, and left on the first of January, 2015, and within short order, I found my way uh, into the business world here at uh, MV, as you describe, where I have uh, uh, a number of functions, of which uh, the ones I'm perhaps most fond of uh, relate to uh, leading people, but most importantly, around the area of uh, creating innovative new ways to serve people and to integrate technologies in a way that's going to help transform the way people experience transportation. So. It's been a pretty fascinating ride, and I'm looking forward to uh, you know the next uh, you know the next adventures that, can, that are unfolding. And and can you tell us more about uh, some of the roles you played in in the in the military and uh, you know especially like in Afghanistan that la- that last large deployment that you led? And uh, I'm sure, I that, mean, yeah. you know, outside of flying, so I have you know almost four thousand hours of flying jets, and uh, and again, for, you know, quickly on with with uh, given the opportunity to move in a number of leadership positions, as I shared. But one of the real areas uh, that uh, became kind of a hallmark and a passion was uh, being called in to help turn around underperforming organizations. So for a whole host of reasons, whether it's in the military, business world, nonprofits, right, uh, we find organizations that are falling well below the line of what they could be and do. And so uh, I was called in a number of times. Ultimately, that led me to become the uh, the uh, the uh, Chief Change and Learning Officer for U.S. Transportation Command. So it's the single largest command, a global command responsible for projecting power. All things, uh, all modalities, all things transportation, all things power projection for the United States of America across the globe. 
So I wrote the strategy for that and helped innovate some new ways. And then shortly thereafter, they asked me to go to Afghanistan to take on these responsibilities as the NATO commanding general for the Air Force. Uh, there we had an organization that had uh, on two occasions, um, you know, it's a very challenging. You're actually, you're, you're building an Air Force, training an Air Force and fighting an Air Force concurrently. So you can appreciate some wow. inherent challenges <laughs> there. Uh, given, and then you're doing it with seven different weapon platforms and you're building literally every single dimension. So, you know, you're not just, uh, the luxury of training, you're building logistics systems, you're building planning systems, you're building what does it take to create a self-sustaining organic capability for the nation of Afghanistan. Mm. And as I said, it was 14 nations, so it was cross-cultural. Uh, the, that organization itself had, uh, in the four years it'd been in existence, it had quote unquote broken twice. And so I came in at a very interesting time. Shortly after my arrival, the president announced a accelerated departure of, uh, of the United States from Afghanistan. Uh, what made it particularly challenging is the Air Force, because it's the most complicated dimension, started much later than the effort that started in 2001. We didn't really start till 2009. So we had a long way to go. So all of a sudden, we found ourselves with a dramatic cut in available time, a need to reduce resources, and a need to dramatically reduce people. Uh, so you're talking an immature enterprise having to get there. Uh, that said, I was able to, uh, uh, work, you know, with the group to create a, a plan that fundamentally altered the nation's approach to how we were going to get at the Air Force, made a series of, of significant strategic recommendations that were subsequently implemented. And as a team, uh, we were able to achieve some fairly startling results using the same type of, of principles that I've seen work over and over again because they tend to be Highly human centric, and in that time frame, we saved uh, we saved over two billion dollars for the taxpayer. We accelerated the growth of the Air Force by three years. We increased combat capability by three hundred percent, and we were able to do it by reducing manpower on the ground by seventy percent. So, pretty good change project. Wow. Well, that that's that could be the whole podcast right there. Uh, just, talk, <laughs> just talking about that, I did not know that. Yeah, uh, interesting. Well, I have so many questions now. Um, where to even start? I and I think we'll. I was going to make it into this a little bit later, but um, you know, you mentioned some of those principles that are human centric. You can you talk about some of those? I'm really interested how you made that change happen. Um, so Absolutely. Yeah. No, well, I would tell you that uh, you know I'm a big. Uh, I had a, throughout my career, I also had the great opportunity spending you know a good amount of time in academia and have access to some some pretty. Uh, uh, some pretty uh, great uh, education opportunities, you know, uh, stints at Stanford and Harvard as well as as a fellow. And during those time frames, I was always drawn to how do we, you know, derive or create conditions so that people will volunteer the best of themselves, right? And uh, early on in my career, I came across a process called appreciative inquiry, which starts from the premise that uh, in believing the best of what is. And so I've always followed a very simple process that we engage people in. I'm a big believer in going highly communicative, highly inclusive. Um, I'm, you know, and, and that means at all different levels. And this is some of the things that we've had, you know, people have never seen before in Afghanistan. It's, and remember, we're, we're training the Afghans, not just, it's not just our own people. So we're building, you know, so you have a, a, a cultural barrier. Uh, but we, we all, we utilize these same principles of, how do you get people involved in co-creating a vision? Leaders so often want to cap the vision and tell everyone to move out. And that's part of the responsibility of leadership. But I'm a big believer that visions should be written in pencil, not in marker. And what I mean by that is you have to invite others. You set a direction, but the most effective results will come when people feel that they're involved in the process. So hence now the process of co-creation. 
you involve people in the process of co-creation by getting, you know, asking questions, being able to be very deliberate in the methodology that you work through. And I use kind of a four-step. I mean, I have four words that really have driven me in every single. I say when I use it, MV is the ones I've used now for, you know, the, the, the four different organizations that helped to try to take to the next level. You know, how do you get in and, and build on the best of what is? I call it, you inquire, right? You know, the process of asking, uh, you know, what is it we do really well that we don't want to lose? Oftentimes with change, right? People kind of want to get this sense of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, and that cre- creates a, just a tremendous amount of instability for people. You know, human beings crave certainty. And so understanding that uh, if you if you build on something that is already there, one, you're honoring the past contributions that everybody's made. But two, you're actually creating what I playfully called like a Linus blanket equivalent because people can hold on to something they know into the future and they're willing to move out now and take new ground. Then I go into, once you've done that, you move into what I call the imagine phase and go, what might be? So you start to imagine what could be now that you're, you see, and that's the process of assessing honestly what your as is state and being very real about it. You know, we were real about all the things that were working and all the things that weren't and where the gaps were based on these new variables. And so when you start to question what might be, it invites people to imagineer or to, innovate, you know, to start thinking about, wow, okay, so these are the opportunities before us. Then you go into the innovation phase about, well, what should be? With all these options, we can only do so many. What should we be doing? And then how would we go about doing those? And last but not least, then you get very intentional about implementing what will be. And in throughout that process, then you use, you know, I'm a big believer in fewer metrics than greater metrics. One of the biggest traps I've seen organizations fall into is they want to measure everything. And you and I know that that you can't measure everything. So I have a rule that we're only going to measure, we're only going to do three to six things. We're going to measure those things because it's, uh, and, and those elements then will be the, the primary compass by which we derive our results and we'll, we'll make adjustments accordingly. So where I'm sharing here is there's, it, it, the key, it, the art I have found in all this, um, is about celebrating simplicity. How do you create a path that has just a handful of steps that again are highly inclusive, highly inquisitive, highly communicative, and that give everyone a sense now that they have really a role in the new narrative that's being created? And then be very, very disciplined in execution by looking at fewer things, not more things. What you'll find is even the hardest project, like building an Air Force in a war zone, um, at that scale, uh, when you break it out that way, doesn't seem so scary. And it's the same thing I find, you know, one of the traps I see people in the business world fall into, the same ones. They want to do too much, too fast. Uh, people get distracted. There's insufficient process. There's a complete lack of buy-in. And, I'll, and this is why... You know, 90% of innovation and change efforts fail to either deliver on time and on budget. 90%. And do you have an example that you can kind of walk us through that where you kind of where you changed around a, an organization or a project or something like that? Sure, happy to. We'll just stick with Afghanistan because that's fun, yeah. and that's probably one most of your, your listeners aren't going to get access to. No. Um, and so, you know, take for instance. Uh, in this process of inquiring and being real about where are we today in our in our journey, right? Because now that they changed all the variables, we had to go faster, cheaper, with fewer humans. Um, so you start to look at what are the key things that are, what are the key outputs? And when you have an Air Force, uh, we really get in fact, I'm not an aviator, so it's easy to get locked up in the planes and the helicopters and the training pilots and all that. But we all really know that it's about the maintainers and the logistics types who make an Air Force go. And so I started asking questions about where are we in developing an organic capability for, for the Afghan maintainers 
that could uh, ultimately be responsible for maintaining this fleet. Because anybody who's traveled around the world or been around military bases around the world, especially other than first world countries, um, and I've been fortunate to be in most countries around the world as an aviator, you know, it's you see these rusting hulks of aircraft, right, kind of shoved off to the side of so many of these fields. And what happens is the Air Force or whatever they were doing was sustainable. So I asked this question to the team, and I got a response that uh, was fairly astounding. They said, we have zero. So, you know, you kind of scratch your head. You're saying we're building an Air Force in, a, in this place. We Ultimately, it's going to be turned over to the Afghan, and we have zero. Well, in you know, in the tyranny of the, of the urgent, there's a lot of other things uh, that needed to be done. So the decision, and that's when the belief is we had a long time. So we looked at it was primarily contractor. So the point there is I said, okay, this is an area now that clearly became a priority. And what I wanted to do is change the way we got about devising a new path forward. So we, we brought in, and I call it value stream mapping, but it's a very Flintstone version of value stream yeah. mapping. I instituted a, a series of what I call two-day facilitated conversations. I brought in outside experts to facilitate between ourselves and the Afghans. And day one would be the coalition talking about the processes and what we're doing and how we're getting at maintenance. So this is our process for maintenance that so far has netted, you know, nobody and what are the variables affecting it. And interestingly, the biggest variables we found were a, a desire to, to, for 100% English speaking. Now, you have to understand in the world of aviation, uh, English is the, is the primary language, but oftentimes we kind of lose context inadvertently. This is Afghanistan and the kind of assets they had probably would never leave the borders. And if they did, they wouldn't make it very far anyhow because there's plenty of people to make sure that doesn't happen, right? So as we examine these, we went through the first day and said, here's our process. The next day, we invited the Afghans who, um, to, the, to now say, here's how we would do it um, if we wanted to actually develop some core maintainers. Um, it was interesting because the first lieutenant colonel of the morning, Afghan lieutenant colonel who spoke, said in the, in the four years previously, no one had ever asked them how they would develop an approach really, to maintenance. Really interesting. So what happens is simply creating a process now for co-creation to be really honest about where we are, where the opportunities are. But more importantly, it shows how often we inadvertently now in our, in, in our good intentions to want to get busy doing things, we don't either ask the right questions or invite the right people. And in this case, the Afghans developed the process that said, you know, if we went this way, it was very contextualized. It took out a number of steps, you know, we were kind of building an air force in our own image. And the United States Air Force is the most lethal and effective force in the world. This is Afghanistan, so we probably so it allowed us to adjust our site picture. Here's the here's here's kind of the punchline. As a result of that collaborative process, it now became the process by which we looked at everything we did that way. And what it told the Afghans there that is they had a really equal voice. It also, in the case of maintenance, allowed us to make some immediate recommendations for changes and requirements for uh, how, who needed English language at what level, how we would actually be able to do something differently. And, uh, and then we, we reinvented the, the maintenance pipeline. And by the time I left, you know, the goal, our ultimate goal by the time the Air Force was going to be quote unquote done over multiple years was to have 1,400, 1,400 trained maintenance personnel at three different levels of classification. When I left, we had 558 maintainers. And that's all you needed. And that was, and that was in one year. Well, we were, what we had done is we'd gone from zero to 558 on the wow. path to 1400, whereas wow. four years had produced zero. So oh, it's not an, it's not an indictment against the previous yeah. years. It's simply a reflection of what you can do with a different kind of approach that invites people to the conversation and then lets them co-create an outcome 
because then they own it. And then you wrap around the same process I shared to be able to say, okay, how do we now enact this and measure it very meticulously? So there's an example for you. Oh, that's a good example. And you're right. You t- I mean, that's a good, great example of you talked about being inclusive and that makes a lot of having them buy in. That makes a lot of sense. And then you get more valuable feedback and ideas and that's good. And so, exactly. I, and I, so I've got a couple more questions on leadership before we dive into MV, but before I do, I'm, I'm quite curious about your, uh, aviator experience and this is a completely side note but uh i'm always fascinated by people who fly jets (laughs) and so i've never been in one but what type of planes did you fly so i started off in in lears and i also made my way to the larger uh, family of aircraft from uh c5s at the time the largest plane in the world which is really fascinating to uh um i went on the tanker community and then i came back to the c17 community uh, which is a great plane and really the workhorse of the fleet now. And then I ultimately in Afghanistan ended up coming back and then doing, uh, uh, we had two, a small light, uh, airlift airplane. And then I also got my first exposure to helicopters in Afghanistan flying Russian MI-17 and smaller, uh, training helicopters. So it was really, uh, you know, six different kind of planes over the course of the career and, uh, you know, across a global landscape. So, uh, it was truly a blessing. Did you have a favorite that? You enjoyed flying out of all those? Yeah, you know, I think I, I think it was later on uh, in the I, from a aviator standpoint in terms of this uh, versatility. The C seventeen is an amazing plane. I mean, we would do you know even when we did air shows just to give you a sense. So this is a big airplane, four engine, ability to land on everything from dirt to regular surfaces, and we would show just to show uh, how impressive that airplane is. We would do a, a maneuver. We would land in the first thousand feet of the runway. Okay. Uh, so this is a big airplane. We're landing in the first thousand feet of the runway. We would immediately put it in reverse thrust, back up a thousand feet, and then put the throttles up to full and take off within the same thousand feet and oh, then wow. pull up into the vertical. <laughs> so when you see a big airplane do that at show center, it's called the rubber band. It makes, it blows people's minds. Uh, but it reflects the kind of technology that are being brought to bear. And the cool thing about that airplane, it actually fits this conversation. It was one where Boeing was very smart and actually invited Load, it was built around the loadmaster. So instead of just being built around the pilot, sure, pilot had input, but it was those who were actually, you know, they built it so that it could be very agile environments to get stuff on very quickly, to get stuff off very quickly. And that would also be able to be employed for special operations and a whole host. So it, it, it invited a lot of different people to the, the concept and the design. So the net effect is probably the most significant and successful airlifter this nation's ever had. Huh. Interesting. That's a good story. All right. Well, I keep, that's another whole podcast too. So we should probably get back to uh, <laughs> the leadership part. Uh, but uh, sure. so in uh, one of the articles you wrote, or someplace I read that you know you mentioned that a leader a leader is um, often a generalist, and uh, I was curious if you could expand on that. And you know, in, in today's world, what type of skills are essential for a leader? And we probably have talked about some, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we have, we have, yeah, I agree. I mean, having been a, you know, ironically a general, so having retired as a general, right? It's the concept of general. And what it means is there's a time in life when we're all starting out uh, and leadership is exactly the same thing. You know, in, in my view, there's a time when you have to have a specific set of skills, right? So there are certain skills that we just have to have to be effective. And then there's certain skills that we really now start to prove our own worth in, right? That really become our market. But the reality is over time, especially, you know, I, I think of leadership often as a tree. And as a tree grows, right, you're casting a shadow. 
So what happens in that is it's okay early on to have a kind of more finite perspective because you're only being asked to maybe contribute around a very defined set of experience or defined set of technical knowledge, right? But over time, as you start to grow and you start to expand your leadership influence, just like the, the shadow of a tree expands further and further, you now have to move away from very specific things and you have to be able to take in information. And it really becomes about how do you combine things in ways that have value. So general, so you become a generalist by virtue of you are now being asked to make decisions or to be able to look at the world in a much broader context. And so for leaders, I would tell you the things that make, in my experience, really effective leaders is they have to be master communicators. Uh, you know, I do a lot of things with, with organizations as far as advising them on how to increase performance. I so, said, look, if you're only going to do one thing, just talk to one another better with more intentionality. So communication is one of the biggest challenges that every organization has of all forms, I mean. So leaders are intentional communicators. They're very authentic. People right now can, you know, they can see through. The minute they sniff out something that's not authentic or that you're, you're just there to push your own agenda, you've locked out a good portion of people you like but can never get back. Uh, so I believe that leaders also, people look to be inspired. And what that means is a leader has a responsibility to intrinsically motivate people. And you do that by your example. You do that by, by inviting them, as we talked about earlier. Because, you know, when you, when you do that, you're also saying, I value you. I, your voice matters no matter where you're at in the enterprise. Quick back to Afghanistan for a sec. So one of the things that was interesting along this concept that bears out this whole idea is my job as a generalist, right, was to I was responsible for the plan and then communicating it up the chain uh, and then delivering it at, a, at, a, at an international level. When every time we reached a certain uh, point where we had to make, uh, you know, lock in on what we thought the next iteration would be, uh, we would bring all the, you know, I would say, like what I call playfully the grown-ups. So all those with the highest rank or the right position, we would come, we would craft this, we would get it all teed up. And we were absolutely sure we had this thing shack on. Well, we always then, I would go do, I would institute what I call random sample club. I'd say, okay, that's fine. Take a 30 minute timeout. And then we would walk the hallways unannounced and we would find the staff sergeants, the captains from Canada, folks just who normally would not be invited to a conversation about strategy or something. And we would push them around the table. And my whole point in that is there is not a single encounter with our own people because at the end of the day, it's really more of the captains and the, you know, the equivalence of the middle, it's the middle manager who is going to be responsible for implementing whatever the heck we're doing, that the generalist and all those in charge are doing. Not a single one of our, we thought, perfect plans survived contact with our own people. And so we were able to make some adjustments because they brought varied perspective, right? They brought different experience. My point there is that's what really good leaders do. They make everybody really feel that they have an important voice that can be shared in some form or fashion. And then by constantly communicating, by constantly inviting, and by constantly being what I would say curious. That's the last piece. Good generalists are always curious. You're learning. You're taking in information from places that you normally not would show up. You, re you know, reading medical journals seems weird, but you find something and you pull that string because you never know what one little piece of concept you'll get from one place. You constantly got to be out there expanding your own horizons so you can add value to those around you. And and you are operating some of the highest levels of leadership, and uh, and, we, and you you mentioned a, a number of good uh, traits for a leader. You know, what's the difference between an amazing leader and just a good one? I mean, is it just being that much more curious, or is there do you have an example of somebody you've run into as a good leader that or an amazing leader? And is there a way that uh, yeah. we can all improve ourselves? 
I think that's a great question. I mean, again, you're right. We've all seen, you know, good leaders are, it's almost, you know, uh, you look at just from, and I, and I spent a lot of time studying leadership there, right? You know, my whole doctoral work was in this area, you know, understanding the, the real differences of what creates between transactional and transformational. So I would say a good leader is someone who's effective at being able to get transactions done, i.e., right? Let's go take that hill. Let's go close this account. Let's do that. And there's transactions. So you can engage people in a way, right, that is going to get them to do their job. And you can do it effectively. Uh, it's almost akin to a manager, right? A manager where they're consistently out there for process. They're doing things that are really important and value-added. But it's a transaction element. To me, a leaders, the leaders you don't forget are the transformational ones, right? They're the ones who imprint on you, literally. And it's because of the methodology and the way that they engage you. Quite candidly, you know, human beings, we're social animals and we're emotionally driven. So what really happens is the leaders who imprint on us are those who made us feel a certain way. And it goes back to made us feel value, made us feel that, again, that things that uh, uh, that we had to say um, were not just heard, but oftentimes had the opportunity to really make the, the final product, no matter where we fit in the hierarchy. So the most exceptional leaders are highly emotionally intelligent, in my view. They're very, very intentional in how they engage people. Uh, they're very thoughtful, but they're also, you know, action oriented. You know, you can do a lot of these things and then find yourself in some level of, you know, you're in a cul-de-sac for a long time because you're, you're trying to get a perfect. So I found that the perfect mix is someone who's really great with humans, great communicator that can basically tap that intrinsic motivation. Once you've tapped into the intrinsic motivation, whereas a transactional leader is more a, you know, a good leader can, uh, you know, get in a, he's using a more, ex, you know, uh, explicit meaning, I you know, carrot, stick, whatever. Yeah do this, I'll give you this reward, right? A transformational leader has now tapped the well inside people. And guess what lives in that well? Which is kind of where we probably want to carry our conversation next. That's the well of creativity. That's the well of innovation. Because to be able to get that from people, they have to volunteer it. You know why? It's scary. It's risky, right? Mm -hmm. Because you don't know. It's not just an idea. And so I find that really great leaders are able to get people to raise their hand and say, have you thought about this? It brings out the best of them by helping knock down barriers that otherwise are going to be there until they're actually um, compelled, literally compelled to, to offer what they have to, what they have to give. And so hopefully that's helpful. Oh no, that's great. And, and how does a, for a leader, how does um, confidence play into the role? And I mean, did you ever, you know, you're leading huge teams and did you ever feel nervous and adequate? You know, how do you, and even if you do, you know, how do you still display confidence? Um, you know, I think that's a great question. So I think, you know, so yes, confidence, you know, confidence and arrogance are, are, are really interesting, you know, uh, place on the continuum. Kind of, you want to, you want to balance both those things without crossing the line, ideally. It's dangerous. Honestly, we're honest about it, you know, because it's easy to get one or the other. But, you know, there are absolutely times where, you know, you, you're not, you're, you're, there's no way you can be 100% confident in whatever the outcome or whatever the action or whatever you're going to choose to do. But I have to say, in all honesty, by using a process that's inclusive of it, the more you involve others, the more that you do your homework, the more that you can uh, can give yourself a means to think through and approach and garner other ideas, I would tell you confident source, not just in yourself, but in those around you. Because you know at the end of the day, it may not exactly work out. But remember, to me anyhow, confidence is knowing that I have done the best I, had, I, I could to make a decision with what I had. And oftentimes, it's the latter part people forget. They oftentimes are happy to say, well, I'm the leader and I'll make this decision. Okay, well, that's the leader's prerogative. But however, have they really now made the best decision with all the available information? How do you know if you haven't asked anybody for the best available information? 
So this is why, again, I'm a zealot for inclusiveness. So quite honestly, I mean, we did some bold things. You know, for a different day, I can talk to you about, you know, creating the first mixed-use unmanned aerial system uh, wing in, in America. And, and that was a really scary place for people. But consistently, I had it was a world I had just moved into, knew nothing hardly about. But we quickly came up with a vision and did bold things that changed the entire state of North Dakota at a national level because we used a similar process. And the confidence came from the process and the people, right? If you give people a clear, invite them to create a clear and compelling purpose and establish a, you know, a moderate level of process so that people can now understand how do you go from the as is to the to be, it is astounding the kind of performance that can come out of it. Huh. Interesting. Well, now I want to talk about that, but, uh, <laughs> but cause so just to make sure, so you were talking, you, you helped develop, um, the unmanned fixed wing drone, one of the first ones, kind of the program. So what happened? Yeah. Well, what happened is, you know, the, uh, there was a, up in North Dakota, up in Grand Forks, North Dakota, which for 50 years had been this really tremendous power projection platform with, tons of all kinds of planes and missiles. And it was just a big deal, right? Especially dating from the Cold War. And then a, a decision was made in the 90s to, uh, I'm sorry, in the, in the mid-2000s to BRAC the wing. So BRAC means base realignment, right? So basically to close the wing and change the mission. So for all these years and all this pride both the community and that base had in doing a particular mission of fixed wing power projection around the world, now it was told that you're now going to become the Air Force's first uh, mixed family of unmanned vehicles now remember it, when you're in the mid-2000s unmanned vehicles are really there are people are like i'm not even like, sure what, what that is yeah. and, and if you're a civilian you're more worried that things are gonna fall out of the sky and land in your car at the walmart parking lot you know so there was a great deal of angst and that wing had gone through and at the time when i was asked to go up there it was leading the air force in every single negative category hmm. number one in suicides number one in domestic abuse number one so you can keep going right and that's just reflective of, of an organization that, that that's just lost its way for a season. And so we went up there, and the way we turned that one around, uh, matter of fact, you can go online, and there's a case study from H, uh, from the Harvard Business Review on this. Um, we used the same principle that I talked to you, a very positively oriented, positive language, positive, highly engaged. We, we did some things, and we created it. Then we brought it to the governor and the state, and it became to the state senators, and it became a statewide effort to now say, if this is what our new mission is going to be, we're going to do it better than anybody in America. Mm. And I'm proud to say that years later, you know, I left there in 2009, uh, about five, six years later, Grand, uh, North Dakota was indeed designated one of only uh, six states in America now where unmanned aerial system testing can happen. And actually the base now is taking on a whole new life as a mixed-use military park and commercial business park for all things associated with helping unmanned vehicles um, proliferate into the next generation. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. That, well, that's a, that was a good, uh, side note. Like you said, that's another uh, story too. Huh? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, we should probably, uh, talk a little bit about the, and I'd like to talk about MV, MV global a little bit before you, uh, we have to end the interview. And, uh, could you maybe just give a, a brief overview? I, I tried to give one at the beginning, but I'm sure I, did not uh, do a, a, a wonderful job. So maybe you could just give a, a brief overview of MV Global and uh, um, yeah, kind of your role there as head of innovation. Sure. So overall, MV Transportation, as you indicated, is the single largest private transportation company in America. It was founded by a couple 40 years ago who still currently own it. And it's involved in all things really serving public transit. 
So the lines of businesses, if you look at large bus systems for fixed route, it is number one in the world for serving uh, paratransit, so those with some form of disability. Uh, we're in school buses, and we've got a black car service called Carmel out of New York. We have uh, shuttles for universities. And one of the – and so uh, my role there was to come in, right, and uh, so develop a strategy for the next three years to dramatically grow the business. It's about $1.25 billion today, 20,000 employees, 170 locations across America, Canada, and a couple across the globe. And so how do we scale the business, right, with great intentionality? You know, for folks who know anything, who really pay attention to the transportation world writ large, there's a full-up renaissance going on. You know, with the Ubers and the Lyfts and the others, it has drawn amazing talent. I mean, Google's in this space, Apple's in this space, and that's a cool sign. So it's cool on the one hand when you got all the smartest people and all the biggest businesses wanting to come because they realize, you know, public transportation in America needs to be transformed. It's less than inspiring, and that's being kind. When you compare ourselves to other nations, we got a long way to go to do a better job, but hence the opportunity. So I was asked to come in and also lead the innovation portion. So how do we develop a strategy? Same things I did to the military, but more importantly, how do we innovate within the organization now that we've got all these other cool possibilities out there? So, you know, to kind of springboard this forward, and at the same time, I watched the, you know, I'm responsible for the, the events we are, the, the business we have in the Middle East. We also have a business in Brazil where we're doing over $4 million, one of the largest transportation providers for the Olympics that are about to kick off here pretty soon. So that's in our portfolio as well. But, you know, an example of, okay, so what does it look like? Uh, you know, I looked at quickly, the, uh, you know, how Uber and others are now have created uh, essentially commoditized capacity in transportation. So how can we use that to serve a client group we're not really serving right now? How do we create a new market within MB? Uh, being very passionate about veterans, you know, I looked at the, at the veteran state, the VA, and I don't think, I think pretty much anybody would know that, you know, consistently the news about how veterans are served through the VA, despite their best efforts, is not good. So it's ripe for a reinvention. It's about a bit, over a billion dollars a year spend goes into taking veterans to and from appointments. So I said, let's tackle that one first. So in a period of 23 days, we had an opportunity. I, I, I led the creation. I originally had the concept that I essentially created Uber for the VA. And we rolled out Patriot Express in Chicago in, uh, on Veterans Day of, uh, of last year. And now it's expanded to San Francisco and it's expanding to other cities. And we, you know, we have made, uh, we have completely changed the way that veterans experience transportation through more agile capacity. We've done a lot of the same things, you know, apps, we've added kiosks, we've added uniforms, but more importantly, we've added, we've made it a priority to hire veterans, serving veterans. So we did the thing you really need to do in good design, and that is how you create a sense of empathy and a sense of connection. What's cool is our complaints were fairly high when we were trying to play in that market generically. When we created this very coherent brand, people can just go to patriotexpress.com and you can see uh, what we've created. Our Complaints have gone essentially to zero. Matter of fact, for many veterans, they refuse to get in any other vehicle but a Patriot Express oh. vehicle. They're wrapped like flag. Our drivers have uniforms. We uh, have integrated uh, uh, advanced telematics so that we can proactively uh, manage our drivers because on the one hand, we want to make sure that we, we have a consistent experience. And part of that is how do we help our drivers make sure they're constantly delivering um, great customer service and they're being safe. And now with advanced telematics and other technologies, I, you know, I get any deviation within 15 seconds into my iPhone. That's the kind of world we live in, which is terribly exciting, right? But our customers are now feeling a whole new sense of dignity, honor, and respect. So that's a, just a reflection of an innovation that has been created, you know, in the 15, 16 months that I've been at MV as a team, but now how you have to be able to move that fast. Again, we created from concept idea to um, getting it packaged in, into an RFP into the marketplace in 23 days. Wow, that's that's impressive. And it, 
and it's such a great story because, like you said, you know, someone sounds like the veterans, you know, aren't always super fond of the VA or, and so, but that whole experience starts when they leave their home, right? And so that when they're getting to the VA now, they're probably in better spirits and hopefully better interactions with everyone. And so, yeah, that's interesting. You're, you're exactly right. Well, I mean, you hit it spot on. You know, it's interesting. The vast majority of the, the VA spends over about hundred has about $170 billion a year budget. And vast majority of it, all of it, except for a billion and some other things, is spent inside the doors. So the VA spent a lot of money in, in, in improving the experience within the hospitals, making them brighter, making them better, getting good people back. However, just as you indicated, if you lose sight of what I call the privilege of first and last touch, if someone has a miserable experience to get into that hospital, I don't care if the hospital is, you know, looks like a loop. Okay. They're not, it's not, they're already off to a bad start. Or if they have a good experience in the hospital and then you pick them up at the end of the day and they get lost or it takes them three hours to get home or it's miserable, doesn't matter if it's the loop. You get my point, right? I look at, I mean, to me, that's the really important part of the value chain. If you want to create a consistent experience and if you're the VA, you, it's not a, it's insufficient to be able to just work on the hospital. You have to control those first and last. And that's why I think why we're so excited to be uh, you know, the, the premier provider now of veteran services in terms of transportation. So, so I'm curious when you, um, the first, when you first started MV, what, you know, obviously you got this going very, very quickly, which is uh, not an easy thing to do. Uh, but from a kind of a broader perspective, you know, what was going through your mind of like, okay, who do I have to meet with and who would I have to get on board and how do I figure out how to innovate here? Um, you know, what was kind of like your 30, 60 day plan or how do you get going when you have such a large organization and you're a new person coming in? I think it's a great question. So I, I you know, I always approach it two ways. Um, you quickly need to understand, you know, I use the same process. I, I, I assess MV for what's the best of what, of what is, right? So you want to be keen and get a clear understanding quickly about what are the truly unique strengths and value propositions this company has. And then so you spend time talking to, you know, you start talking to other decision, your contemporaries, other decision makers within the company. And the nice thing is in the C-suite, there's only seven of you, you know, so you go there first and you're all kind of already in the vibe and you start to extend it to other influence leaders throughout the organization for the purpose of saying, what do you think is the best that we do and asking where do you think the greatest opportunity is? At the same time, however, you got to split that with being, uh, I believe you have to really do your homework and understanding the the environment you're in. So it didn't matter, again, whether it's a, you know, I didn't know anything about building Air Force and War Zone, so you learn about that. I didn't know much about the public transportation market, so you learn about it. And this is where you quickly start to see what could be. This is when you look at the Ubers and the Lyfts and you look at the kind of demand signal that are the kind of possibilities they create. And then, then you start to think through how could that be applied in a new and novel way? At the end of the day, it's all about innovation, right? You know, about taking imagination and being disciplined about what you've learned and then now going, how would I take this learning of what is and what could be and combine it and then compel people to say, hey, let's try some things out. And so it's really a process of constant investigation, of constant questioning. And then I don't go in there to say, I want to innovate about the VA. We didn't do that. And that's not really what I've found true innovation happens. Innovation is every day you're preparing yourself. You're reading something else. You're talking to somebody else. You've got your learn. So you're preparing yourself by just understanding as much as you can about your business and about the opportunities in the outside world. And then all of a sudden, you know, in this case, the VA came out with an RFP to be able to do something in Chicago. And that's when we said, wait a second here. Hmm. We, we looked at the experience and said, well, look what we could, what could we learn from Uber? And what could we do better than them that they can't do? Because we're, again, we were operate through contracts. And so innovation is combining existing things in new and novel ways in many regards, right? 
And if you have a gap, then you create something to fill the gap. But it's, it's there. So there's a whole bunch of pieces that go into it. But it usually shows up, and it only shows up to the prepared mind, right? Yeah. And that's the key here, is it's too late to be able to go, oh, I'm going to create something new for the VA, or I want to create a whole new way to serve those with disabilities. Well, it ain't going to happen that way. It's, it's a combination that you have, you've got the right network, you've asked the right questions, and you've challenged yourself to be, to immerse yourself into a lot of diverse perspectives. Hmm. And it emerges. True innovation emerges to the prepared. Yeah, that's a prepared mind. That should be almost a, a book title. That's good. I mean, you're, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Like often you hear about a company that's, you know, all of a sudden just launched and it's doing really well. But you, if you look at the person who founded that company, they probably have been in multiple industries and s- somehow they, you know, saw a pattern between those industries and put put the pieces together before anybody else did. And because they were prepared, it may have taken them 20 years, but to everyone else it looks like they took you know took them a year to get to where they are but uh that's a exactly well that's the generalist you just described the generalist concept right so over time they pull it they, they, they you're right they combine different experience from different places and it took them a while to get there or they did their homework and uh and then they knew when the opportunity unfolded it unfolded because they could actually see things in a certain way or they can combine things in a certain way and they were able to leverage their own experience uh their own research and their own network. That's the other part why you want to have a deep network. You know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, my, my last book was, you know, The Art of Positive Leadership. I wrote it while I was in Afghanistan. And I did it because if you got 14 cultures, you got to find, you got to create a common language where people can, you know, clearly understand on how do you expect them to be, right? Because if you don't achieve consistency, you know, here we are, we're in six different locations in an active war zone with 14 different nations. So it's a little bit of a daunting challenge. Well, the simple way to get there is focus on the high human element and how you expect people to show up. And if you can do that, you can create something that everyone can identify with. You now created an anchor. And once you have something you can anchor in as a group, now you can actually move out and ask them to really cool and you know and bold things. And that's what I think really good innovators do. They're building their networks. I'm constantly out there. You know, I just finished a conversation yesterday with the CEO of Bridge. Him and I have been going back and forth, and he's created and him and his team have created the concept uh, of microtransit. You know, which is pop up bus stops. Fascinating to me. So it's machine learning and how you apply machine learning now to fill gaps in a marketplace. To me, that's not a core competency we have, but innovation is saying, wow, we took that and we could actually go to a client now and underperforming routes. We all of a sudden have found a way to save our clients money to be able to bring in a whole new set of innovation that better serves the constituency, right? And we filled a gap in our own portfolio. So you've created kind of a value chain of win, win, win. Interesting. So it's an example of real time. If you're out there in the world, Talking to people, being gracious with them, being highly emotional, intelligent, and constantly, you know, immersing yourself to new ideas. Um, that goes back to your earlier point. Confidence comes from knowing you're doing what you can with what you have, right? To respond when that moment comes. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. All right. Well, unfortunately, we should probably wrap this up pretty soon. But I, I am curious around uh, with the MV. What you know? What do you see over the next five years? You know, whether it's a Self-driving buses, or like we you know you talked about the Uber model. Um, you know, what are some some things you want to try to get done in the next five years? That's at least not confidential. Um, yeah, I would tell you. Uh, you know, I, I, a little while ago I made a comment about um, capacity has been commoditized. So when you when you start converting people's personal cars to the way we convert our personal houses to Airbnb, right? To everything out there with reels is essentially an opportunity to be put into service. So now that it's been commoditized, it's going to be about how do you organize things in a different way and deliver capacity as a service. That's what I'm working on now. 
And to me, that's what people in the future, instead of having to buy whole big buses and the way we've constructed transportation systems today, we're going to be able to be very, very deliberate and to be able to drive down price point to be able to need to just the right kind of experience for the customer. And it's going to lead to a much more efficient business model. This is why I'm working with SAP and some of the most advanced partners in the world to say the technology allows us to do it. And by the time you bring in artificial intelligence, it's going to allow us to constantly self-correct. So the systems today in America are woefully inefficient writ large. I'm talking public transportation. It's largely unaffordable, and we have to find a better way. I think all the pieces, I like to say everything we need to do things in a world-class fashion are already here at Visible and Plain Sight. And so the next several years are about how do you find the right partners, aggregate the right technologies, and bundle it all in a whole new way, uh, a whole new paradigm of transportation, and then convince people it's the way to go. To me, that's the fun of it and the art of it. <laughs> nice. That's right. And it sounds like you're having fun. And uh, I think that was a a great way to end the, the interviews. So I definitely appreciate it. This is a, a, br a brilliant interview and uh, I learned a lot and um, I, I didn't even know about you, the, the book you called the art of positive leadership, but I, I looked you up a lot, but I, for some reason I didn't run into that one. Um, is that what's called the art of positive leadership? Yep. I okay. think you can. Yeah. That was the one that came out last year. So you, okay. you know, All you right. can take a gander at that. So, uh, and you'll just find 52 stories written over 52 weeks, and uh, you know, again, they're they're about being just becoming a person worth following. Huh, interesting. All right. Well, John, definitely appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and sharing your experience and your thoughts. And I know I learned a lot, and I think uh, our our audience will learn a lot too. Absolutely. Well, again, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity. It's great to be connected with you. My very best to the audience, and I'm hopeful that in the future we'll have an opportunity to have another conversation. Hey, that sounds good. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. I appreciate it. Bye.